All right, good morning, Village Church. Good morning. Open up your Bibles, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We are starting this week a series called Impossible Love. We're going to be trucking through 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It's a love chapter. And uh, very quickly, I want to tell you why this is called Impossible Love. Because over the last six weeks, here's what we've seen. If you do not have the Holy Spirit resident inside of you, you will never, ever, ever be able to love with the kind of love we're going to talk about this morning. That the requirement to love with divine love is that you would place your faith in Jesus and receive the Holy Spirit. That's it. And so if you're here today, um, we're going to talk about for the next few weeks this kind of love. And here's what I want you to know. You can try and you can try and you can try. And it is impossible to love with divine love if you have not first trusted in Jesus. And, and so on the front end, I want to tell you my win. My win is that if you are not a believer in Jesus, my win is that you would hear of God's love. You would be so compelled by it that God would reveal himself to you in Jesus Christ. And you would walk out of this room for the first time experiencing God's love for you as a son or daughter. That's my desire for you. My desire for you is that you'd stop trying to earn God's love and work for God's love, but you would truly just trust in Jesus Christ and what he did for you on the cross. Now, Christians, my, my win for you this morning is, I think, a little bit more challenging, um, but I think doable. My win is this, is that if you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit, that you would move from a life of random and accidental acts of love to an intentional life of agape love. So for most Christians, I'm just making my observation, we love, but it's random. It's accidental. It's just kind of opportunities that come up, and it's not intentional. And so if I have a win this morning, it's that you would move from living a life of accidental agape love to intentional daily agape love, that you would wake up and realize after this morning's sermon that if I don't have love, I have nothing, and I need to wake up today and figure out how to give away what God has given me in Jesus Christ because my purpose and my meaning and my effectiveness for that day is contingent on whether or not I get this that we're going to talk about in this message. And so I want to set up um, some... Uh, context for you, give you a little bit of a um, refresh from a few weeks back. We talked about the foundations of love and the benefits of love, and we talked about the six different biblical words. Well, five of them are biblical, one is not, but five or six different words in Scripture um, that define what love is. And we talked about there are foundations of love and there are benefits of love, and that if you want the benefits of love, you have to have the foundations. And if you have the benefits without the foundations, you're going to get emptiness. And so here are the foundations. We had three words. The first is Ahava. And Ahava is a Hebrew word, which is a love that chooses. It's best illustrated with a mom and a dad, and you have a son or daughter. And this daughter or this son have done nothing good or bad. You don't even know their capacity to be terrible or to be awesome. And you look at this child and you say, I choose to love you. I choose to love you. Whether or not you are a terrible human being or whether or not you are the greatest son or daughter on the planet, I'm going to choose to love you no matter what. And this is ahava. The second kind of love is hesed. And this is um, best illustrated in marriage. This is a covenant love. It is a covenant-keeping, loyal, faithful love. It's the kind of love where a husband and a wife, they stand on the altar and they get married and they commit to each other to hesed one another. That no matter what you do, no matter how many of my expectations you don't meet, I will faithfully give my best to you as far as it depends on me. 
And then we have the word that we're going to focus on this morning, which is agape. Agape seems to, to be um, the New Testament word that takes all the best of Old Testament love and captures it in a word. And agape very simply is sacrificial love. We're going to see what this looks like a little bit more in a few moments. But these are the foundations. If you have these, you now have a context to experience the benefits of love. And the first benefit is called philia. This is brotherly love or friendship love. And this is, comes from the word, you know, Philadelphia, city of brotherly love. And filial love is the love that you would have for one of your closest best friends. And then you get to this second word, which is storge love. This is familial love. Um, storge love is the kind of love that goes deeper than a friendship. You know, like you mess with my family, I'll kill you kind of love. Like loyal love, protecting love. It's just a different level of, of love here. And then finally, the third one is a Greek word, a Greek term called eros. It's sexual erotic love. So what we find is that people are desperate for the benefits of love. And when people are desperate for the benefits of love, do you know what they do? Dumb things. When you're desperate for ahava and hesed and agape and you don't have it, because of sin inside of us, we try to get that met by eros or storge or philia, only to realize that if you try to pursue the benefits of love without the foundations, it will leave you void and empty and sad and miserable. You show me a friendship, a philia love, that does not have a root of faithful agape sacrificial love, I will show you a contingent friendship. Most friendships that we have are based on shared experience and shared interests. But you give me a friendship that is based in agape love, sacrificial love that will give my best for their benefit, I will show you a philia that goes deeper than most philia and ends up actually becoming like a storge familial love. Um, you show me a marriage, right, where you, you are friends and you have eros, but you don't have hesed, I will show you a marriage that is contingent that will end in divorce. And you need the foundations of love before you get the benefits of love. So now I want to play a game with you. You ready for a game? It's called Would You Rather. I've been told <laughs> I am an interrogator. Um, apparently, if you're dating somebody and, like, say you're in college and you bring your girlfriend to boyfriend to church, I will ask a million questions and make them very uncomfortable. I'm, I'm told this often. One of my favorite games to play is Would You Rather? And this is kind of an icebreaker. kind of gets to the point, melts everybody's nerves a little bit. So you can answer. Now, you have to pick one or the other. You can't not pick, okay? So Would You Rather have no internet or no cell phone. I know, your, your mind's exploded. Like, <laughs> is that even possible? Well, I'm saying, well, maybe the, maybe the cell phone plugs, that's true. What's the point of a cell phone without internet? Question answered. <laughs> Talking to people, what? It's ridiculous. Would you rather go back into time to meet your ancestors or go into the future to meet your great-grandchildren? Ooh, totally future. Can't control the past. I really want to know about the future, right? But then if you met them, could you come back, change your behavior, and then change their future? Just saying. I know. Some of you are like, what did he say? It's too early. It's too early. 1140. <laughs> All right, for real. Would you rather save the life of a starving child or have an actual working lightsaber? 
You are terrible. Some of you are so mad. I can't believe you tricked me. Of course I want a lightsaber. They're going to die eventually. Gosh. That's exactly what some of you are thinking right now. Don't judge me. You're the one who thought it. Would you rather have no one show up to your wedding or no one show up to your funeral? Somebody in the last service said, well, you'd be dead, so who cares? That's a trump card, let's be honest. Would you rather live in a world where there are no problems or a world where you have absolute control? Total control in Harvey, you know? Would it? Yeah. Touche, Deneen, it would be the same thing. I w- All right, I'm just going to get inappropriate for a moment. Would you rather have, it's not sexual, don't worry. Would you rather have all your teeth loose, wiggling, or every other tooth missing? (laughs) Now that I've thoroughly distracted you for the duration of the sermon, you'll think of nothing but lightsabers and wobbly teeth. So... I like making awkward transitions, so let me go for it. Uh, so I'm going to ask you one more, would you rather, and you already know the answer. The answer is so easy that it's ridiculous. And so I'm going to tell you my follow-up question before I even tell you the would you rather. Then why don't you do it? So here's the question. Would you rather grow in sacrificial agape love or grow in selfishness? And of course, your answer is easy. Of course, I want to grow in a sacri- or a sacrificial agape love then why is it so hard? Why do we wake up and most of our experiences with agape love are random and accidental? So I wanna, I wanna help you make a distinction here that I think will just set the context for 1 Corinthians 13. And it's simply this, that every season of your life, you're gonna find you will be on one of two trajectories. And the first trajectory will be toward agape love and the second trajectory will be toward hoarding selfishness. I want to explain this. So let's define agape love. This is the best that I can do to put this word in our context to make it make sense. Agape love is a life posture of joyfully giving your best for the best of others. I want to focus on the word joyfully because it is possible to give your best, but if you do it with a bad attitude, it ceases to become agape. So God cares intensely how you love. Not just that you give your best, but how you give your best. So when we talk about tithing, right, um, we, we say God loves a fill in the blank, cheerful giver, a happy giver, a joyful giver, right? And I imagine a world where someone's like, I don't want to tithe. And God would look at you and say, well, then don't. I don't want your money. You know, like, I don't need your money to make this place function. That's what God would say. And, uh, and he would say, I want you to want to give because how you do the things, how you give your best matters because God didn't begrudgingly with bitterness be like, how could these humans do this? I got to give my son Jesus to die on the cross. Like, that's not at all how he thought about it. Jesus for the joy set before him. God knew the outcome of what was going to happen. So he gave generously. He gave his best and he gave his best for our good and our best that we might know him and be in a relationship with him. And so focus on this. Agape love is a life posture of joyfully giving your best for the best of others. And how you do it matters. A while back, I preached a sermon. I had the best of intentions. It was a hard sermon. It was a hard topic. 
And um, I asked the church, as I usually do, you know, if you feel like there's someone in your life who's not a Christian, would you share this with them, encourage them? Um, and uh, so uh, this person in our church shared the sermon with somebody who was not a Christian. And here's what the response was. He says he loves me, but I don't feel like he loves me in the way he said it. He says that he loves me, but I don't feel like it. A question, was that a win or a fail? It was a fail. My intentions might be great, but if I was not able to communicate God's love through me to her heart, then I didn't succeed. So I think sometimes we think because intentions are good that that's enough. And sometimes it's just actually not because we can have with the best intentions leave somebody feeling empty and unloved. And this has happened to me on so many occasions. I'm like, people are like, that really like, made me feel bad. I'm like, I didn't actually have any intention to make you feel bad. I wanted you to, f- to feel loved, even though it was a hard thing. I didn't want to uh, crush you, you know? And so how you do things matters. Now, I'll, I'll probably never meet that person, but I want to go up to them and be like, you know, I'm sorry, I failed you. Because I had good intentions, but good intentions are irrelevant at the end of the day because you who didn't know Jesus did not experience God's love through how I said it. Which is hard because I know my motives and I want to defend myself. But how you do it matters, and how people perceive and receive it matters. Uh, If I speak, uh, and I think I'm communicating clearly with you, but you don't understand Spanish, it doesn't matter because you're not receiving the message. So I have to actually take great pain and measure in how I love to make sure that the people I'm loving, to the best of my ability, receive it as love. So God has wired people who choose intentional love to make some hard decisions But here's what God, I think, has just wired us for, to experience incredible, lifelong joy when we give our best for the best of others. Uh, I've had to learn this over my life the hard way because I I love being selfish. And when I learned, uh, when I was 19 or 20, to give my life away, to come into these doors and to serve and to give my best, my life radically changed because I found more joy than I could possibly communicate to you to the point where God had specifically called me to this, but to the point where I gave my entire life to giving my life away for the sake of Jesus' church. Now, whether you're a pastor or you're not a pastor, this should be our posture to give our best for Jesus Christ and his bride so that their best might come from that. I love this, that agape love moves enemies toward friends and acquaintances. Here's an interesting thought for you. How many of you have ever found yourself with more affection and love for somebody because they yelled at you and got angry? Like, you're stupid. Oh, I love you more. That's so great. Thanks. I appreciate that, right? So here's what's ironic is like most of us in this room, we want our spouse to have a little bit more agape love. Can I get an amen from someone in this room, right? You can say it. Everybody knows it. You both want it, right? It's fine. So here's the irony. The very thing we want, we don't get typically because instead of loving with agape love, we get angry. We get demanding. We get demeaning. And it actually produces the very opposite thing that we want. It's insanity if you really think about it. But what's cool about agape love is, is that especially in broken relationships is that over time, somebody who can faithfully, joyfully give their best for the joy and the best of somebody else, what it does is it dismantles and softens hard hearts and makes them light again. And it takes time. Some people it happens right away. But uh, here's the point. Like agape love, when we give it, actually softens the hearts of people and makes them want to love us back. And yet because of our flesh and our sin nature, it's so easy for us just to be selfish and demanding and demeaning. Uh, The second trajectory is selfishness. Selfishness is the life posture 
of hoarding your best for the good of yourself. It's the life posture of hoarding your best for the good of yourself. And some of you are automatically thinking, because this show is like hoarders, that we're talking about stuff. I'm not talking about stuff. I'm actually, it could be stuff. Um, it could be your time. It could be your talents. It could be your words. It could be you just want to accumulate um, a whole bunch of people who have a great view of you because you want other people to think you're awesome. And so you just do things so that it makes much of you. You're hoarding things for yourself. And you're keeping it for yourself for your best. And even when you do love somebody, there's an ulterior motive, which is to make much of you instead of make much of the love of Jesus Christ. And so here's what I want to just commit to you. If you will continue on this trajectory, you will be miserable. You will be depressed. You will be sad. You will not experience life. And I, I want to just speak to the inverse for a moment. Um, here's my promise to you. If you can walk through these doors and give your best for the best of somebody else, you will never regret it. It is the joy of my life. There are people who give so many hours a week to this church. It's not because they're crazy. It's because they have actually found that the more they give their best for the joy and the best of others, the happier they really are. And it's hard at first. It's, everything good is hard. But once you get through the hard part of it, it becomes amazing. And you start to develop community and friendships that are actually not just worldly friendships that are contingent, but they're rooted in agape, sacrificial love. So they endure. They're not rooted in performance. Well, if you do these things, then I'll continue to be friends. They're deeper because they have the foundations that are strong and that are built. Ironically, selfishness moves people away. It moves friends to acquaintances and enemies. Agape love moves people toward you. And so I just want to pose the question to you, what would you rather have? Agape love or selfishness? If you're not intentional, the majority of your life will be selfish love. And that's how powerful the flesh is for Christians. And so we have to wake up and we need to remember that today my trajectory is going to be sacrificial love. I'm going to give my best for the best of somebody else. And I'm going to do this joyfully. And when we struggle with the joy, we say, God, give me joy. Give me joy because I want to be joyful. I want to do this. And honestly, um, I have found that the more you do it, the more joy just comes. So 1 Corinthians 13. I'm going to set up some context here. Now that I've uh, told the soil of your minds, we need to be able to plant some seed with the word of God here. And the first point on 1 Corinthians 13, and this will make sense in a moment, is would you rather learn to love or be in an annoying gong? I love this. I just, every time I read it, I laugh. Um, and so there's a couple points of context that we got to make about 1 Corinthians chapter 13. You know, this is the love chapter. Love is patient. Love is kind. You hear it at weddings. It's really great. Um, but there's a few points that I want to just get clear to you. And here's, here's the first one, is, is that the Holy Spirit um, is a brand new concept for Christians, okay? So before the life, death, resurrection of Jesus, the Holy Spirit um, randomly, not randomly, purposely, but uh, uh, fell on a few men or women in specific points in time so that they could accomplish a specific ministry or job by God, and then it would go away. And so with the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, no longer did followers of God have to go to a temple to be near the presence of God, but God's presence left the temple, and it filled who? Christians, the church, right? And so now, here's the crazy thing. Like, the presence of God, the fullness of God is dwelling in God's people. And here's what happens. People start prophesying. No longer is there this special office of prophets. Now, like, daughters and sons and moms and dads and old men and young women are prophesying. And they have these revelations from God that are true. Um, they have insights into things that are just, they didn't know before. And then 
People start speaking in tongues. They start speaking, they'll be preaching and the people from foreign nations will hear them in their own heart language, which happens in Acts chapter 2. And then people will have um, what's called the gift of knowledge, these, uh, this ability to know things that were previously unknown. And so weird things are happening and prophetic things are happening. Some people have the gift of healing and miracles. And then like people are like, I can heal you. Like you're, you're sick, you're broken. Let's make this well again. And you have all of this power, but no teaching. And so inevitably, what happens? Do they use this gift with agape love or selfishness? Selfishness. And I don't know what God was up to when he gave something as powerful and amazing as the Holy Spirit and then didn't train people right away on how to actually navigate the nuances and details of the Holy Spirit. Now, the book of 1 Corinthians was written a couple decades after these experiences happened. We get some teaching and clarity in here. But here's what you need to know. The Holy Spirit is a brand new concept for them. They're blown away by it. And now like they, they have this power that they had not previously known. And so they're going a little bit crazy. And so um, Paul in 1 Corinthians, the letter is kind of one big rebuke. Uh, technically, the love chapter, it's a rebuke. Um, it's not like a fluffy, like, yay, we everybody love each other. I mean, this is like a hard saying. Now, chapter 13 is stuck between 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 14. And these are chapters that are on what's called spiritual gifts or spiritual ministries. And I want to take a minute because, again, if we're going to understand this text, you've got to understand what's happening here. And so what happens is that God's uh, spirit, when somebody trusts in Jesus, fills them, right? And he gives to every single Christian a spiritual gift or a spiritual ministry. Here's what that means. It means that if you're a Christian, you have the opportunity, the joy, and the privilege to serve your brothers and sisters in Christ every time you're around them. It's like every time you walk through the doors, you have a ministry assigned to you by the Holy Spirit who is inside of you, and that ministry is intended for you to be used so that when you walk into church, you would use it. Got it? So if you're a follower of Jesus, do you have a spiritual gift? The answer is yes. And that gift is always to be used for the edification, the building up, the encouragement of other brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, you may not know what your spiritual gift is, and I don't have time to help you right now in the moment. Um, our core class is an awesome opportunity to dig into what are spiritual gifts or ministries, what might yours be, how do you use it, what does that look like? Many of you know exactly what God has called you to. Many of you know that he has called you to serve and to give your best whenever you come through these doors on a Sunday morning. And we say, you know what, I'll just push that aside. Yeah, I'll deal with it once every month or two. And yet the posture of a believer walking into the community is one of building up edification. So we say at Village, we come to church for two reasons. To exalt Jesus Christ and to edify one another. And so this is just a question for you this morning. When you walk in, who are you edifying? Every morning we have visitors. If you're a Christian, you can use your, you can encourage and build up a church even if you're not from that church and you're visiting. And so we try, if we go to different churches, just to encourage or to build up or to encourage the pastor or something of the sorts or one of the leaders or encourage somebody we're sitting next to. And, and this is how God has made us to work. He fills us with his spirit. He gives us a ministry. And then he asks us to use it every time we engage God's people. Well, how do you know that you have a spiritual gift? Two ways. Number one, the body affirms it. The people of the church look at you and say, this is a ministry for you. This is, you should do this more. And number two, the Holy Spirit works through it. So now, apparently, I have the gift of teaching. So if I come up and you guys are like, dude, you should not be teaching. You're like, this is not good, right? And you leave and you're like, I'm dumber for it, right? 
maybe I don't have the gift of teaching, right? On the other hand, if you come up and you're like, you need to keep teaching, like I feel like I'm learning more about God and I want to love him more because of that, uh, then that might be evidence that there's a gift there. And so you look for confirmation from the community and you look for um, the Holy Spirit moving through that gift and people measurably becoming more like Jesus through your exercising of that gift. Well, the Corinthians get a hold of these spiritual gifts. You know what they're doing? Look at me. I can speak in foreign tongues. Look how awesome I am. I have prophetic powers. I'm going to unveil a secret in your heart. Um, I know something that you don't know. Look how awesome I am. Me, 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 me. I'm amazing. I'm spiritual. Good God. Yeah. It was a self-promotion contest. That's what it became. So we're going to watch this unravel. But um, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 31, at the very end of chapter 12, he says, earnestly, uh, this is where we get our word zealous from, zealously, with fervor, desire the higher gifts. What he's trying to communicate here is the way you're using gifts is totally about building yourself up. And you need to desire and pursue gifts that build up the church, that build people up, that make them more like Christ because they were in your presence. And so he looks at me and says, I love that you guys love spiritual gifts. Really, I do. You're a little crazy, but I love it, okay? Don't think negatively about spiritual gifts. Pursue them. But he goes on, he says this. I will show you a still more excellent way. And then we're going to open up. We're going to get into 1 Corinthians 13 now, the love chapter. And so now you get the context. They've just uncovered in the last decade or two the Holy Spirit. They don't know how to use him, and they're using him for selfish means and self-promotion. And then here's what he says. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. So first of all, let's just clarify so you all know what, what are tongues. Um, we see tongues in Acts chapter 2, and it's people preaching the gospel, um, and foreigners are hearing that um, preaching in their own heart language. That's the only example of tongues that's described. Um, it's literally the word languages. So it says, if I speak in the languages of men, uh, and of angels. That's just literally what it, what it means. And so he's saying here, okay, if you have the ability to go out and, and preach the gospel and then people hear it in their own heart language and believe, which is a miracle, right? Um, because he says in the next chapter, chapter 14, that tongues is for unbelievers. So is tongues for believers? Well, according to Paul, no. The gift of tongues is for unbelievers. And so he says, look, you might be awesome. Even if you could go out, you could go out to an entire island and you could preach the gospel in your heart language and then they hear it in their heart language and then they trust in God. Like you may think you're hot stuff, but you're not. And so then he goes out, if I speak in the tongues of men, and of angels. Now, there's a word here that I want to just share with you. You've got to get this because throughout, throughout the next three verses, uh, this is going to be what he does. It's called hyperbole. Um, hyperbole is exaggeration for the sake of a fact. So what Paul is going to do is he's going to paint impossible hyperbolic scenarios. They're not even possible. But even if they were, and that's what he's going to talk to us, is even if I could speak in the tongues of men, or even if I could speak in the tongues of angels, can people speak in the tongues of angels? The answer is no. It's an impossible hyperbole, okay? But even if you were so awesome that you could hang out, sit around the couch, have a beer with some angels, and you guys could just have a conversation, and you're hearing them in your own, even if you were that awesome, okay? If you do not have love, here's what you are, a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. I think this landed um, pretty hard on them for two reasons. Number one, noisy gongs are annoying, 
right? I mean, just imagine Ricky, our drummer, is out there, ching, 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 on the cymbal, right? It's like, oh, stop. Um, you don't do that. You're amazing, Ricky. Um, so, yep. My wife doesn't know this, but she's going to become an illustration. I happen to be married to somebody who is annoyed to the point of rage at repeating sounds. Is that true? Amen, Anna? It's true. If you want to send my wife uh, into the flesh, <laughs> repeat noises over and over and over and over again. She happens to be married to somebody who um, subconsciously is obsessed with making repetitive noises all the time. <laughs> so everywhere I go, I'm like tap, 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 tap my foot, tap my foot, tap my finger, and I get rhythm all the time. Worst is, I've always done this. When I'm in the car, I put my arm around the seat, and I beat that seat to the rhythm. Let me tell you, whatever music is on, I'm like, bum, 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 you know? And she's sitting here like this, like her head, right? I drive her insane with my need for repetitious, it's crazy, right? And so I just think it's amazing that the Lord put us together. I have begun tapping less, and now I just do this on my, it's, it's crazy. Anyways, um, but it's thoroughly annoying. But this hits the Corinthians on a second level that I think you gotta get, you might just miss if you don't know the context. Um, the Corinthians were not Jewish in background, by and large. They're a bunch of Gentiles who came to Christ. They didn't have um, deep teaching. They didn't have foundations of the Torah and all this stuff. And, and, and so what is understood is that um, one of the things that they were familiar with would have been pagan religions. And in the pagan religions, here's what would happen. Um, they would be chaotic. They would be overwhelming. They would allow spirits to fill themselves, and they would speak in the tongues of the spiritual realm and gibberish languages, and they would beat gongs and clanging cymbals. And, and so basically, you bring all this together, and here's what he says. Look, you might have the greatest spiritual gifts on the planet, but if you do not have love in the way you execute them, this is as good as pagan worship. And it's annoying. I don't know about you, but the last thing I want to do is give my best for the best of someone else and have Jesus look at me and saying, I was kind of worthless. Like, why don't you just go to a pagan ceremony and hit a gong or a cymbal because that's how meaningful what you just did is. I don't, I don't want that. I want Jesus to see my love and I want him to be so happy and I want people to feel my love and I want them to be like, man, that makes me want to give my best for the best of, of others. Here's Paul's point. So what if you're the most spiritual person in the room, but people find you incredibly irritating? <laughs> and I will show you a more excellent way. Number two, would you rather learn to love or be left with nothing? And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, do you get the point, hyperbole? <clears throat> and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, what am I? I am nothing. And so prophetic powers, this ability to speak to the past, present, or future, um, God's will, God's word, God's thoughts into relevant situations. I um, mean, this time they didn't have the word of God. Uh, they didn't have that crystallized. So really what they had are major gifts of prophecy communicating what God wanted in certain moments and certain times. And, and now we find all these people have the gift of prophecy and, and they're trying to figure out how to use it. But he says, what if I have prophetic powers? Like, I'm not just your average prophet. I am powerful. And what if all mysteries... All knowledge. I mean, the gift of knowledge, sometimes it's hard to nail down exactly what it is. It's either this ability to know things that were previously unknowable or, uh, we'll just say, um, a propensity for great knowledge acquisition, um, the ability to retain it, not totally sure all the time. But he says, what if I understood all mysteries and all knowledge? I mean, what if there was no question that you asked that I didn't have an answer to? What if I was the smartest, most powerful person in the room? And what if, 
What if I had all faith? I love this. It's not some faith, all faith. So Romans 12 says, God has given to each a measure of faith. So do you all have the same amount of faith? Answer, no. And all that's required for salvation is a, we'll say, mustard seed. But God has given to each a measure of faith. And God loves faith. When he sees faith, he moves heaven and earth for people who have faith. So what if I had all faith? I had so much faith that when I said, God, move this mountain from here to there, God was like, done, mountain moved, you're amazing, your faith is awesome. And I don't have love, what am I? Absolutely nothing. Me plus Jesus without love is nothing. It's nothing. I don't know about you, uh, I don't want to be nothing. I don't want to be left destitute. I, I really want when I use my gifts, when I serve, when I encourage, when I build people up, it's not that I want to be something, but I want people to see Jesus in me. I want Jesus to look at that and say, I loved when you did that. That was clearly my spirit working through you and in you. I love that you cooperated with my spirit. I think Paul's point is this. So what if you do big things for God? What if you can do powerful, move mountains, prophetic powers, all knowledge? And you were left personally, relationally, and spiritually destitute. You're hoping that if you do these things and people think you're amazing, that somehow they'll think better of you and you'll be happy. Who cares what people think of you? If you do these things and you don't have love, you will be left spiritually, relationally, emotionally destitute. There's too much at stake to not figure this out. And then finally, number three, and this will land a little hard, but I think you'll get the point. Would you rather learn to love or go to hell? He says, if I give away all that I have, the gift of giving, the gift of generosity, this gift where God wires inside of people the desire to give as much of their stuff away to, for the betterment and joy of other people, right? You know you have the gift of generosity because you're always trying to find finding ways to give and it makes you happy and you're pumped about it and you don't want anything in return, okay? Uh, and so if I give away all that I have, like you have the gift of generosity in spades. Okay, what if I give the ultimate gift? What if I deliver up my body to be burned? He says, if you do not have love, you gain nothing. Nothing. Something? Nothing. I want to read to you 1 John chapter 4, verse 8. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. So there are really, really, really smart people at Village and every church. There are really um, yeah, just intelligent people. And there are really hardworking people, people at our church and every other church. You just do a ton. But if you don't have love, here's my question for you. Why not? Now, I want to go back to this question of joy, okay? Because I think that is what separates agape love from human love, okay? Two people can give their best for the best of somebody else, but one can do with bitterness begrudgingly and the other does it with a spirit of joy, why, why don't you joyfully want to give your best? Um, why do you struggle to love? Why do you love being the one with all the answers? Why do you love being seen as the most spiritual? Why do you love um, promoting yourself and telling people how awesome you did and all these things? Why do you love for people to think highly of you? But you don't just seem to have love. Like the people who receive it, don't quite translate it like that. They translate it as self-promotion or arrogance. I'm not saying you're not saved. I'm not saying you are. I'm just saying maybe you need to go back to the table and reevaluate some things. Because catch this. If God is love and the spirit of God dwells in you, what should begin to leak out of you? Love. 
love. And if we resist this, and if we are just frustrated by this, and maybe, maybe even if, we just, can't, we just can't pull it, we just can't pick up our bootstraps and do it. Like, I just have no desire. The problem might be you have never received the Holy Spirit by trusting in Jesus truly. Uh, because here's what I know. This kind of love is impossible unless you have the Holy Spirit. And there are Christians, I am convinced, who will stand before Jesus and they will say, I preached in your name. I taught in your name. I prayed in your name. I prophesied in your name. And he'll say, away from me. I don't even know you. Why? It's like, it's like they missed the point. There's no love and love, how you do things, not just what you do, but how you do it, is one of the marks of a person filled with the Spirit of God. Now, most of us, because it's just life, life's busy, life's hard, um, we find ourselves as Spirit-filled Christians um, being, we'll say, accidentally loving people, right? And that's good. That's great. I'd rather you do it accidentally or, you know, oh, a certain circumstance just came up, I'll do that, but then you don't think about it. Uh, here's, here's my thing for you is, what if we were intentional about it? What if we woke up and we said, I am made in God's image, filled with God's spirit, who is love, and he has created me today to give this love away so that people know it and feel it. Like, that would kind of change a lot of things, right? So I read this, and I'm like, wow, God, I, I, I accidentally love really well, right? And sometimes I even do it joyfully. But God, I want you to do a heart work in me that makes me get up and reminds me to love with joy and intentionality every day because, honestly, there's kind of too much at stake not to. I don't want today to be nothing and fruitless because of my bad attitude. I, I, want, to, I want to stand before Jesus at the end of every day and have him say, thanks for that. That was awesome. You showed more of me to that person. You modeled just a glimpse of what I did on the cross. You gave your best for their best. Um, I, I don't want to, at the end of the day, do all these things for people and just be irritating and annoying and to be left relationally and emotionally and spiritually destitute because God is not pleased because I am loveless and joyless in my giving of love. And I don't want to get to the end of my life and have had nobody ever look at me and say, you're unloving and you might want to ask the question, is the Spirit of God really in you? Have you ever trusted in Jesus? Have you ever come to him on his terms and surrendered your life through faith and not by works? Have you ever asked him to save you and confess your sins before him? Because if you do, that spirit of Jesus Christ, who is fully love, will begin to work in you. Now, does that mean you're going to be the perfect lover? Everybody say no. No. But here's what it means. You have the capacity now to love, to joyfully give your best for the best of someone else. I wrote on here, and I thought this was funny, loveless Christians are annoying, insignificant, and doomed. <laughs> That's not what I want to be. Anybody else? Loving Christians are useful, effective, and redeemed. i got to make something clear. Are you saved by your works or your love? No. Your love is evidence of what the Spirit of God has already done in you and your faith in Jesus Christ. And let's pray together. Lord, I am I'm just so grateful for Jesus. And Lord, you loved me. You loved us while we were unlovable, while we were enemies, while we ran from you. Lord, nothing in me wanted to follow you, and you gave me faith. You gave me eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart to believe. I'm just so grateful. Then you gave me your Holy Spirit, and then you gave me a ministry, and you gave me purpose. And now that I'm speaking for every follower of Christ in this room, it is amazing. You just keep being generous and giving and giving your best for our best. And God, I thank you that when you gave Jesus your son, 
Uh, he went for the joy set before him. I thank you, God, that you were not begrudging, uh, but Lord, you did this because of your love for your son, your love for us, and your love for your glory. God, I thank you that the spirit of love that is in us is a spirit of joyful love. And Lord, I know I speak on behalf of every follower of Jesus in this room, and I say we need more joy. Uh, not because we are concerned we're going to hell, because honestly, I think most of, them, most of us Christians in this room have security in our salvation, but we just want to bring you more glory. We want to be more useful. We want people to know your love more because of the way we've loved, which is really just a response to your love in us. My prayer is that you would fill us with gratitude as we unravel just a glimpse of your beautiful, perfect standard of love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen.